The reading this evening is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 26. John's Gospel, chapter 4, and verses 1 to 26. Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. A Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. <coughs> Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. 
The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Amen. If you look back over your life, I wonder how many encounters you've had that have had a lasting impact on you. Or where maybe you have had a lasting impact on somebody else. In the films, in their TV adverts, these are usually um, romantic encounters. Uh, Impulse uh, springs to mind as one of those uh, products. That exchange of glances, that looking back. But how many brief conversations have you had that have opened up some spiritual awareness in somebody else? Because that is what Jesus' ministry was all about, spiritual awakening. When we think of Jesus' encounters with uh, different people, we probably think of him most in the context of teaching his disciples, um, preaching to crowds on the hillsides, or debating with Pharisees. But Jesus was very good on a a one-to-one personal basis. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in the encounter with Nicodemus, and we see that this evening in the encounter with the Samaritan woman. There are a few people who are able to relate equally well to people of different ages, children as well as the, the elderly, to different classes, the, the, the well-off, as well as to the homeless, to different races, to uh, people in the Western world, to those in the third world, or to different educational abilities, the, the university professor or the, the school dropout. But Jesus was one of them, because a couple of weeks ago we looked at his conversation with Nicodemus, and he was a respectable, well-educated, powerful Jewish leader. And this week we see him engaged with an uneducated Samaritan woman who appears to be a social outcast. And yet Jesus is able to speak to both of them to address their different needs, because at the end of the day, they actually have the same need, and that is the need of Jesus Christ. In the same way that we all need Jesus, whatever situation we are in, whatever background that we, we have. And of all Jesus' encounters with, during his ministry, his encounter with a Samaritan woman is, I think, probably one of my favourites, because it's pure grace at work. It's dealing with someone who's very needy, whom Jesus is able to converse with quite freely, and who is not afraid to challenge in love. As we look at it, I hope you will be struck by the person of Jesus and his love for those whom society may have rejected as hopeless cases. And hopefully we may be able to learn something about our own spiritual conversations as well. Well, the first thing that we um, soon realise in this passage is that there are many barriers between Jesus and this woman that he's able to break down. The first of those barriers is that she is a Samaritan. When Jesus asks her for a drink, and notes it's uh, he who takes the initiative here, she replies... In verse 9, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John adds by way of explanation here, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, if we're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, we will know that there is a a history of antipathy between the Jews and the Samaritans. But where where does that come from? might help just to sort of um, have a flashback, a short history lesson to to help us understand this. Let's go back to when... The, uh, the kingdom was divided um, into the northern kingdom of Israel 
and the southern kingdom of Judah after the death of Solomon, which you can read about in 1 Kings 12. Um, later on, King Omri named the capital of the northern kingdom Samaria, and um, that name came to describe the whole of that kingdom. Later on, the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722 BC, and they, they deported most of the Israelites, and they settled the land with, with foreigners. But those foreigners um, intermarried with the remaining Israelites, and it ended up having this uh, very corrupt religion. And of course, the divide between Judah and, and Israel um, worsened when the Samaritans built their own temple in, uh, on Mount Gerizim in 400 BC, uh, which was subsequently destroyed by the Judeans towards the end of the second century. So there's this history of, of religion, religious hatred between these two peoples, which carried on for many generations and is carried on here in this episode we're looking at this evening. So she's a Samaritan, and she's also a woman. Their women had a very different status in those times. Um, Jewish attitudes prohibited speaking with a, a woman on the street, even if it's uh, your own wife, apparently. Um, certainly not with somebody else's wife. But she's also an outcast. And going to the well was apparently a, a social occasion. It's a bit like going to do the washing up at the campsite. If you're into camping, you're there with your hands in the sink, you look to the left and the right, and uh, you, uh, feel you just have to make conversation, don't you, really? It's a social time. And so here, the women would have gone together to the well. They would have chosen a cool time of the day, not the time of this episode here. The sixth hour, which is midday, and at midday, only mad dogs and Englishmen venture out. She's on her own. She's an outcast. And the reason why, we'll find out later. She's a woman, she's a Samaritan She's an outcast. But in the same way that Jesus wasn't afraid to meet with tax collectors and sinners, he wasn't afraid to break social taboos and talk to this Samaritan woman, even though she would have found it incredible that a Jew would ask her for a drink. Jesus removes these barriers. Where human beings are not able to, to interact with others because of differences, he cuts through that. He sees each one of the people as a person made in the image of God, with an intrinsic value. As it says in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As Jesus' disciples return and 27 um, onwards, it says they were surprised to see Jesus talking to her. They didn't actually ask him why he would be doing this. They realised he was setting them an example here. But what is the lesson that we should um, learn from this today? Because you know, many of the social barriers that may have existed in the past are no longer exist for us today, do they? You know, the old class barriers, they're no longer what they used to be. There's a good little costume drama on, I think, uh, this evening on television, if you're into those sorts of things. I um, can't remember what it's called now, but it shows the Victorian class divide, a bit like the old upstairs-downstairs programme, if you remember that far back. There may may still be some of that sense of class divide, but nothing like it used to be. We've never really had the race divide in this country like you have in other countries. It wasn't long ago that um, in the US, blacks and whites drank from separate water fountains, went to different schools um, and separate toilets. South Africa, it was much worse. In Northern Ireland, there's still much religious tension. Not long ago, there was another 
car bomb that went off just a couple of months ago. But again, in England, we are quite detached from that in many ways. We know that in many Muslim countries, the position of women is still not much different from what it was in this story here. Taliban being an extreme example of repressing women. But again, in our situation, women enjoy equality. So whilst many of these barriers are broken down, it is still possible for us, though, to put up barriers in our own minds, often without even maybe realising it. A difficulty that we may have in relating to someone of a, a different age or social class or race may become for us a barrier that we don't even try and overcome. We allow that to remain a social barrier for us. And of course there's the issue of pride that sometimes sets up barriers. How do we deal with it when somebody we know dislikes us? You know, I was sort of joking about it a bit earlier on with, with, the, with the, the neighbours. There is a sense of pride, isn't there, there? And the woman's initial reaction here in this story when she says, you, know, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? There's probably a bit, a bit of bitterness in that. You know, you Jews hate us Samaritans. How can you dare ask me for a drink? What's your game here? We, we may be struggling again with that same sense of, of injustice. And it is a human natural reaction, isn't it, to, to, feel, to be filled with anger, to be filled with frustration, to put up barriers almost to protect ourselves when we're in that situation. But opposition comes from those who are against Jesus and the work of his church. And there will be those who fall into that category. Then there is little that we can do about those barriers other than pray for God's mercy on those people, that he would enable them to, that he would work in them and, and make them receptive to, to the church and the gospel. But where is the question of our pride being hurt, then we have to pray that God would enable us to do our bit to break those barriers down and to not hold on to personal grievances. Jesus breaks the barriers, but secondly, Jesus addresses our spiritual needs. Sometimes we won't be sure what is causing a barrier. And it's interesting that Jesus moves here very quickly from the the woman saying, how can you ask me for a drink, to address her spiritual need. Look what it says here. In verse 10 it says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water is a, it's a common Old Testament term for spiritual vitality. In Ezekiel, the prophet is, uh, is shown the living water flowing out from the temple after the return of God's glory. It's also symbolic of eternal life, of uh, the pouring out of God's spirit. We start with our service, don't we, with those verses from Isaiah. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters who are spiritually thirsty. Isaiah 44, it says, For I will pour out, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now, it's not quite clear here why the Samaritan woman chooses to ignore what Jesus is saying, the obvious spiritual implication of what he's saying. Maybe it's because the Samaritans um, would only read the Pentateuch, they maybe didn't have those verses. From, uh, from Isaiah to, to have known. And maybe the woman's just being a little bit sarcastic here, you know. It's um, just thinking just in spiritual terms, in material terms and physical needs. 
And so she says there in verse 11, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Now, Jesus isn't to be put off here, is he? He carries on in spiritual terms. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, the spiritual image there is not even subtle, is it? You know, living water is saying eternal life. Do you get it? Do you get the connection here? That's what you need. The woman comes back again, doesn't she? Sir, give me this water so I don't, won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, if you were in Jesus' position, wouldn't you think, yeah, this is just going nowhere. I'm talking eternal life. And she's thinking how many trips she has to make to the well. You know, we're just on a different, different level here. But look at where Jesus goes next with this conversation. Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband, and come back. That's a bit random, isn't it? Where, where does that come from? Go call your husband and come back. Well, Jesus is now going for the jugular. He's hitting where it hurts. The woman's probably starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable now. Why is he asking about my husband? You know, I, I live with a bloke, but we're not married. I, I get enough stick from my neighbours because of my complicated love life, but he can't know anything about that. This guy's a stranger. I've never met him before. Maybe I'll just tell him I've got no husband. That'll, that'll keep him quiet. But then Jesus comes out with this real bolt out of the blue. He says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. It's a good job they're on their own, isn't it? Imagine how that one have gone down at a dinner party. Suddenly, it's a bit of a hush. But let's be clear here, Jesus is not saying this in order to, to score points, to embarrass her. He's not saying this, to, saying this to condemn her. He is stating the facts, things that he can only know because of his supernatural power. And he's saying it partly to show who he is, but also to enable her to look at her own heart. Why is it that she's had five husbands? Is it that she cannot hold on to her husband? Is there something about her that, that, that drives them away? Or has she been treated badly? You know, why are people so unreliable? Is she looking in the wrong direction for, for fulfilment? And Jesus is saying that you won't find it in human relationships. Now by this stage the woman is beginning to realise that this is no ordinary man here. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. You know a lot of uncomfortable things about me. I don't really want to talk about those, so let's just change the subject and talk about something, something easier, shall we? And so she carries on, where our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, if you read the commentaries, they differ as to whether this is a genuine comment. You know, um, she's recognised that he's a Jewish rabbi. Um, let's talk about the differences in uh, what we believe. Others will say, actually, it's just a diversionary tactic to get away from any further probing that may open up her heart and make her um, feel vulnerable. I think it probably is a diversionary tactic. You haven't been in that situation myself many times, as I'm sure many of you have been. You know, you're talking to somebody about spiritual issues and they feel uncomfortable because that is not the realm in which they, they think. 
They live in the material world. And so that they'll get the conversation back to material issues by talking about the church building or differences between denominations or the Pope's visit. You know, happy to talk about current affairs, what's going on in the news, but to deal with my spiritual life, well, no, steer away from that, please. But how do you feel about the woman by this stage in the story? Have you started to maybe um, lose sympathy for her? You know, at first she seemed a bit of an unfortunate victim, a bit lonely, um, but now maybe you're thinking, five husbands, you know, sounds a bit like Joan Collins here. She's beyond help, surely. The thing is, whenever any of us has a real encounter with Jesus, he will reveal the dirt of sin in our hearts. He will see through the cover-up, the excuses, the self-pity, and he will show us for who we really are. And it's not pleasant. Jesus has revealed the woman's heart. She's tried to steer the conversation towards safer ground, but Jesus is not about to get into a discussion about the differences between Jews and Samaritans. What he does is take her question and demonstrate her need for a saviour. Now that is the most amazing thing about Jesus. The reason that he tells the miserable news about ourselves is so that we can appreciate the wonderful news of salvation. He can rescue us from the mess that is called sin. And the words he uses here are very carefully chosen. It's not about where you worship, not about your religious rituals, nor your traditions. It's about who you worship and how. The woman talks about our fathers worshipping on this mountain. Jesus comes back and says, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And two more times he mentions the Father. And we're getting now to the the crux of the matter. What is worship? What is salvation? And Jesus is bringing them together. Do you see that in verse 22? Look, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Worship is meaningless if you haven't been saved. To be saved is to be able to relate to the Father. To relate to him is to worship him. See see how it goes on here in verse 23. Our time is coming has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Well, we could spend a whole sermon on what is true worship, which we haven't got time to do now. You'd be relieved to know. But things are beginning to click here now for the woman, aren't they? Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And as the disciples come back, she leaves her water jar and runs back to the village and tells everybody, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And later on it says in verse 39 of this uh, chapter, many of the Samaritans from that town came and they believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And as he stays with them, as he teaches them, they are able then to say for themselves at the end of this passage, over in 42, 
We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. This is an amazing meeting between Jesus and a Samaritan woman that changes not just the life of this one person, but many more from her town. Jesus is bringing together the, the Jew and Samaritan in true worship. He's showing that he is the long-for Messiah. And he cannot be confined to one place and one people. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth by all nations. The religious places are no longer needed. That is a shocking revelation. Well, as we um, come to a, um, a conclusion, we ourselves are living in a society which is spiritually blind. People find fulfilment in many different things. One of those is sex and relationships. But as Jesus is saying to this woman here, relationships don't provide lasting satisfaction. <coughs> you have to keep going back to the well for satisfaction if you're putting it, your trust in relationships. And one day the well will dry up. The only one we can continually trust in is Jesus Christ. He knows our struggles. He can help us to overcome them. And the sad thing is that most people think they are the only ones who can make their lives better. They don't accept that they need a saviour. And what is going on in this calendar is not just Jesus trying to, to win an argument. It's not Jesus trying to score points here. It is Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit opening blind eyes. It's only Jesus can, who can do that, but Let's not forget that we are his agents in that work. It's up to us to go out and break down those social barriers, to engage with those around us, to to point them to Jesus. It is hard work. It will involve pain. We will be rejected. We will be untrustly treated. Bad things will be said against us. The devil will try and frustrate our efforts. The question we have to ask ourselves as we finish, is do we care for this world enough to be prepared to go out in God's strength and to fight that battle? Do we care enough to be prepared to pray regularly and consistently that blind eyes would be opened to the need for a saviour? I do hope that we will.